You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Today we have a special segment on global health, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. James M. Hughes, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at the Rollins School of Public Health, Emory University. He's the director of the Emory Program of Global Infectious Disease in the Medical School and also a senior advisor of the Emory Center for Global Safe Water. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Hughes. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Pickard. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. First of all, could you tell me, what is the focus of the Emory Center for Global Safe Water? Yes, I'd be happy to talk about this Emory Center. It was started with the generous support of Dr. Eugene Gangarosa, who has had a lifelong interest in improving people's access around the world to safe drinking water and adequate sanitation. The center focuses on conducting research related to strategies for prevention and control of water-related diseases particularly in the developing country settings, but some work is done in the United States. We provide educational and training opportunities to students in public health, and some of the students in the nursing school and the medical school take advantage of these opportunities as well. And we provide on a limited basis, given our time constraints, a consultation to other groups that are active in water and sanitation and personal hygiene work around the world. We work closely in the center with partners at CARE and with CDC here in Atlanta. What is the message that the center is trying to get out to our own community and the world at large? Well, the message is that these issues related to water, sanitation, and hygiene are really global issues. They are issues in the United States, and they're even more severe as issues in the developing parts of the world. From time to time in the United States, we have waterborne disease outbreaks every year, 15 to 20, or are identified, and others probably occur that aren't picked up. Back in 1993, there was the largest ever reported outbreak in the U.S. with over 400,000 cases of waterborne cryptosporidiosis identified in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that many of our listeners will remember. Although we read about catastrophes in Burma and China and the lack of water, our own country during Katrina experienced shortages of water and people who are struggling during that catastrophe. So in the United States, there is an issue then possibly with water becoming scarce? Well, indeed, there are water-scarce areas of the United States. The southwestern part of this country is quite familiar with issues related to water scarcity. And over the past year or so, here in the southeastern part of the United States, we've had a major drought with diminished water availability to communities here in Georgia, including Atlanta, and communities downstream in Alabama and Florida. So these problems do occur in the U.S. Following Hurricane Ike recently on the Texas Gulf Coast, certainly in Galveston, they had unavailable water for a period of time in the city. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned there's a conflict between the states, and we've seen conflicts with how water is controlled in Turkey with the Euphrates and water going down to Syria. We've seen this in Jordan and the Danube. Who owns water? Well, no one owns water. Water is essential to life. It's a critical resource. People cannot survive without it. Access to clean water and adequate sanitation is a 
should be viewed as a global public good. Is there a direction that your center is taking as far as water, sanitation, general hygiene? Well, thank you for enumerating the components of what I like to refer to as the intervention triad. Although our center is called the Center for Global Safe Water, what we really do is focus on access to safe water on the one hand, access to adequate sanitation on the second hand, and on the third hand, access to soap and water to ensure maintenance of good personal hygiene. So it's a, it really needs to be a three-pronged approach. And how do you put this forward? How do you sell this in third world countries or even in the United States? We all know how difficult it is to get doctors to wash their hands even in the hospital. Yes, well, you've identified another critical issue and a major challenge, and it relates to behavioral change. And behavioral change is a critical component to strategies to address these water sanitation and hygiene issues. And as the refractoriness of some in the medical profession to practicing uh, adequate hand hygiene illustrates, it can be a challenge to get people to change some of these very ingrained habits. If we have a problem now, I'd like you to direct your remarks about our expanding population and also what is global warming going to do to this issue? Well, in terms of the health impact of these water-related disease problems, it's the poorest of the poor that are primarily impacted. And similarly, I think as we see the impact of climate change and, and warming that is occurring, we're going to see that it's the poorest of the poor, again, that are most vulnerable. And certainly, climate change and global warming are not going to help in terms of issues related to water quality and and in particular issues related to water availability. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and today we have a special segment on global health, and our guest is Dr. James M. Hughes, Professor of Medicine and Public Health, Rollins School of Public Health at the Emory University. With such a valuable commodity becoming rare, can you anticipate that wars would ever be fought over water? Oh, I think that's a very real possibility. I don't think we should anticipate actual armed conflict in the southeastern part of the U.S. or in the southwestern part of the U.S. There clearly are water wars, as we say, going on in these two geographic parts of our own country. Now, water and sanitation issues transcend national boundaries. And there are many river basins where the water passes through a number of countries, and those who are upstream obviously get first crack, and those that are downstream may or may not have enough available and safe water by the time it gets there. So the potential, particularly in water-scarce parts of the world, for conflict to arise is definitely part of the reality. We've kind of defined these issues. Do you see solutions in the future for this very, very difficult problem? Well, there are solutions, and I think this is a complicated question you've asked. Think about, particularly in the developing world, you've got urban environments, and the problem is most severe in these so-called mega cities, which are cities of more than 10 million people around the world that have urban slums and peri-urban slums and generally inadequate pipe water supplies and certainly lack sewerage systems. So so there are real problems of a certain type in, in those urban settings. 
And then in the rural settings where you've got people much more spread out, where there's not much hope for any sort of water distribution system being developed, you've got other sorts of challenges. Now, there are different ways to cope with this, but it requires an interdisciplinary approach. It requires political will at the national, provincial, and local level. It requires educational components and behavioral change. And it may require, depending on the setting, what we refer to as point-of-use water treatment or disinfection at the point of use, which often is in the household. So these programs exist in some parts of the world, and they have, at least in the short term, demonstrable health impact. But the long-term solutions to these problems require approaches that are effective, first off, sustainable, scalable to the national level, affordable, equitable, and culturally acceptable, i.e. culturally appropriate to the setting where the interventions are being introduced. And then they require investment, collaboration, and political will to sustain them. We've talked that over 1 billion people don't have adequate water and 2.5 billion don't have adequate sanitation. There must also be a tremendous ripple effect as far as what this happens economically. We've talked mainly about the health issues, but I think about all the time that, say, women spend gathering water and losing time from work and also the time lost from school for children. Does this also have to be addressed? Oh, it absolutely does, and thank you for bringing those problems to the attention of our audience. First, to deal with the school setting. If you think about schools in the developing world, you'll realize that some of them may not have access to safe drinking water, and many of them clearly do not have latrines for the students to use. And you can imagine how that impacts on school attendance, particularly by girls. So there's a lot of evidence that putting functional latrines into schools greatly enhance school attendance and school performance and ultimately the productivity of the individual in addition to their health. There is a disease known as giddy worm, and it's also known as empty granary disease because the farmers are so disabled they cannot harvest their crops. So again, I wonder what must happen to food costs during this kind of time in the agrarian society. Well, guinea worm is a disease that is the focus of a major global effort to eradicate it from the face of the earth. And dramatic progress has been made, and transmission persists primarily in northern Ghana and southern Sudan. Now, this is a disease that doesn't kill very many people, but it has causes severe disability. And the cycle of it involves frequently people, particularly adults, who have the infection develop ulcers typically in the lower extremity at the site of extrusion of the worm. And these ulcers often manifest themselves during the agricultural season, particularly at the time of harvest. So the disease impacts on the economic productivity of affected individuals and can, in fact, impact in a serious way on local food supplies. The cycle of the worm has been interfered with in various ways. They've all involved behavior modification. 
Does this empower people in a third world country or even in our own country to take their health into their own hands and make them feel that they can deal with the disease that has been, in the case of guinea worms, since the time of the Egyptian cultures? Well, they can certainly deal with it, but they need the knowledge and they need some of the tools and they need the cooperation of others in the community as well as support from provincial and national level authorities in settings where transmission is actively occurring. So it requires a collaborative effort. It requires political will. President Carter deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the leadership that he has provided globally to get national leaders to focus on the importance of addressing this public health problem. I want to thank Dr. James M. Hughes, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University for being our guest. And you've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We've had a special segment on global health. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening.